0: 2014 will bring the 25th commemoration of June the 4th, 1989. I've been occasionally repeating earlier reflections which deal with that tragedy from various perspectives. Today I'm repeating the 687th reflections, June the 4th, 1989, as it was seen on January the 22nd, 2005. Charles the Young passes away. Comrade Zhao had long suffered from multiple diseases affecting his respiratory and cardiovascular systems and had been hospitalized for medical treatment several times. His condition worsened recently and he passed away in Beijing on January the 17th after failing to respond to all emergency treatment. He was 85. Suppose that on January seventeenth, two 2005, you had heard me speak those 52 words, and then this broadcast had gone completely silent. Or suppose that after reading the four-word headline and the three-sentence paragraph, I had immediately switched to discussing other less weighty matters, unconnected with Chinese politics. In either case, you would have known immediately that Reflections from Asia was effectively no more, and that our local China-whateverists, with their casual disregard for sustaining Hong Kong's autonomy, their disdain for the two systems amidst their blind loyalty for the one country, their careless indifference protecting Hong Kong's vital freedoms, that they had won out you would have recognised that Hong Kong had finally been reduced to the same level as the People's Republic of China. Controlled information, controlled media, continuous censorship in order to achieve controlled thought. This is because those 52 words that... All too brief paragraph was the way in which the People's Daily reported the passing of former Chinese Premier and former Chinese Communist Party General Secretary Zhao Ziyang, some 24 hours after the rest of the world had heard that news, nearly always in much longer reports. The People's Daily did not accord Zhao's passing with front-page treatment. Its 52 words were a slight rearrangement of the 56 words used by Xinhua News Agency to report Zhao's death. But none of the 1.3 billion Chinese could hear those 52 words on either their radio or their TV. Let's backtrack a bit. The People's Daily is owned and published by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. The People's Daily is therefore the authoritative voice for the party which rules China's one-party state and which controls all its media. Until the day he died, Zhao Ziyang remained a CCP member, having joined the party way back in 1937 and having gradually risen through the party's ranks. There was so much which the People's Daily ought to have said about him. Zhao Ziyang held responsible positions in Guangdong province in the wake of the 1949 revolution when he helped to supervise a rather brutal land reform programme and again following the economic chaos let loose by Mao Zedong's great leap forward. After the political and economic chaos of the great proletarian cultural revolution, during which Zhao suffered the humiliation of being paraded through the streets of Guangzhou in a dunce's cap, in 1975 he was appointed governor of Sichuan province. There, reversing the economic folly of the Maoist years, Zhao initiated some of the reforms which he was later to reduplicate, especially in the coastal provinces of China, and which unquestionably have been one of the main foundations of China's economic success. This nationwide reformist success came when a native of Sichuan, Deng Xiaoping, was impressed with Zhao's success in that province. Deng, then battling the Maoist whateverists for power at the highest levels of the CCP, called Zhao to Beijing, pushed him onto the Politburo, and in 1980 made him Prime Minister in place of the leading whateverist, Hua Guofeng. Zhao was Premier from then until 1987. The reforms he implemented met with sustained opposition, especially from more elderly but still influential CCP cadres, who, in 1986, succeeded in bringing down another dedicated reformist, Deng's first appointee as General Secretary of the CCP, Hu Yaobang. In 1987, Zhao was made CCP General Secretary in Hu's place. It can be argued that up until this point, Zhao's career path is no longer considered controversial. The economic mistakes of the 1950s and the 1960s are now widely recognized. Deng himself excoriated the Maoist errors in the 1980s as he sought to take China down the capitalist road, though his criticisms of Mao tend to be downplayed these days. The elderly CCP cadres who consistently resisted the changes pushed by Deng, Zhao and Hu have all passed away from the scene. Of the so-called eight immortals, only Bo Yibo is still alive. Scarcely a day goes by without some direct or indirect reminder of the value of the reforms which Deng, Zhao and Hu then brought about. So it is nothing short of extraordinary that after Zhao's death, the CCP did not use Zhao's passing to enhance its legitimacy in the eyes of the people of China. Zhao's reforms of yesterday could have been related to the fast economic growth of today, thereby underlining the party's farsightedness in policymaking but this political opportunity was completely missed and not merely because the People's Daily tucked those 52 words away in a corner near the weather reports which many readers might miss. Chinese radio and television were ordered not to mention Zhao's death at all and as far as can be seen, obeyed this injunction. Coverage of Zhao in foreign news channels which can be seen in China, such as CNN or BBC, were blacked out. Chinese newspapers were told that they too must refrain from detailed coverage. They can rerun that 56-word report from Xinhua News Agency, provided they request permission first. Zhao's death also demonstrated the extent to which the CCP has been successful in controlling the Internet. No sooner did words of appreciation or of mourning for Zhao appear in various chat rooms or some websites and nearly all of them were quickly deleted. In a nutshell, the CCP went to great lengths to avoid using Zhao's death as a party-boosting history lesson. Instead, as during the Cultural Revolution, so today the Chinese Communist Party tries to cut the Chinese people off from their past. Of course, the attempt to suppress all news of Zhao's passing came as no surprise. The CCP did its best to make sure that Zhao was a non-person for fifteen and a half years after the events of 1989. It has been doing its best to make sure that he is a non-person in death, too. Security precautions have been stepped up in Tiananmen Square just in case anybody should have the temerity to publicly remember Zhao. Friends of the family were allowed to pay their respects at Zhao's home, but when Zhao's longtime secretary, Bao Tong, tried to leave his home, he was forcibly restrained from doing so, and his wife was pushed to the ground, damaging her spine. Foreign reaction has concentrated overwhelmingly on Zhao's highly emotional last public appearance as CCP General Secretary when, together with Li Peng and with Wen Jiabao in tow, he visited the students in Tiananmen Square. It was a rare and magnetic moment as Zhao expressed his sympathy with the demonstrators, urged them to leave the square, admitting that he had come too late. Obituaries have concentrated upon this incident and his subsequent dismissal as CCP General Secretary, seeing Zhao almost as a democracy icon, often to the exclusion of Zhao's earlier reformist achievements as Premier, and certainly to the exclusion of other aspects of his character, such as Zhao's earlier belief in the necessity of authoritarian rule. The concentration on that one Tiananmen incident has been all rather as if, for example, Winston Churchill's political career was evaluated primarily on the basis of his defeat in the 1945 general election. For Churchill, of course, there was always the possibility of a return to power. For Zhao Ziyang, there was to be no comeback. Overall, against all these striking illustrations of the totalitarian state at work, it should be a source of satisfaction that Hong Kong was the one place within China where Zhao Ziang was given the remembrance that was due to him, though, sad to say, there were not lacking those who would have liked to reduce the SAR to the same silence on the subject as that which pervaded the rest of China. The very absence of any obituaries for Zhao, the fact that his crucial role in China's reform process has been totally ignored, and the obvious effort to make his death a non-event of a non-person, all these realities arise precisely because the CCP is focusing narrowly on precisely the same events as the foreigners. The only difference is that while in the outside world, the video of Zhao with the students is played endlessly – Within China, it is never played at all. In this crucial but significant way, the CCP absolutely refuses to open up to the outside world. Meeting face-to-face with demonstrators, sympathising with those who disagree with you, even daring to disagree with what the party dictates, these are all grave sins which the CCP apparently can never forgive. What does this silent posture signify? First and last, it means that politics within China are once again firmly in command, in the sense that no one was thinking creatively about the situation following Zhao's death. This was well illustrated by the Foreign Ministry spokesman, Kong Kuan, who sought to silence the foreign press by insisting that, quote, the political disturbance and the problem of Zhao has already passed, what happened in 1989 has reached its conclusion. The past 15 years have shown that China's decision was correct, unquote. But the continuing silence, then and subsequently, reveals that the events of 1989 have not yet reached a conclusion and that a deep vein of political insecurity throbs within the CCP, inhibiting a necessary confrontation with past decisions. For now, a reversal of verdicts on the Beijing massacre cannot even be considered, let alone discussed. So let me just conclude by giving Zhao Ziyang himself a chance to have the last word. Here are a couple of quotations from his self-defence and rebuttal of the charges against him at the 4th Plenum of the Chinese Communist Party, 13th Central Committee, June the 23rd and 24th, 1989, when Zhao was formally dismissed and Jiang Zemin appointed in his place. Quote, For years I have been a bold activist in economic reform, but cautious in the area of political reform. I used to call myself a reformer in economics and a conservative in politics, but my thinking has changed in recent years. I now feel that political reform has to be a priority. If it is not made a priority, then not only will economic problems get harder to handle, but all kinds of social and political problems will get worse. My general approach to handling the student movement was always to avoid confrontation with the students, to try to win over the majority among them, and to get the movement to settle down. I was constantly worried that if we took a hard line, or worse, if we called in the troops, in a situation when we still did not have the majority on our side, it would be difficult to avoid conflict and bloodshed. That would only exacerbate the problem, and even if we succeeded in putting the movement down, it would leave behind deep and lasting psychological damage. Unquote. Two previous CCP General Secretaries, Deng Xiaoping and Hu Yao Bang, both admitted that they had made mistakes and wrote self-criticisms. Zhao Ziang never did. Instead, on the 20th anniversary of that last appearance in Tiananmen Square, Zhao Ziyang's memoir, Prisoner of the State, was published in Chinese and English, giving his critical assessment of where Communist China had been and where it was heading.